All right. Well, good morning. Um, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. It's Luke's second book in his account of the story of Jesus and his kingdom. Today, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. So go ahead and turn there. The text that we are looking at is a text that is full of both grief and hope. And so, if you're able to stand as you get there, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read, beginning with verse 15 of Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray for your help today, Lord. With all the things that we see in this text, Lord, we want you to be uh, working in our hearts. We want to know you, we want to trust you, and so please give us guidance and help in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, what is happening in the text today? This, this text is about the replacement of Judas, the disciple who had betrayed Jesus. And I think, honestly, for the first time, I've thought about this situation from the perspective of the, the apostles and probably Judas. And I wonder if we miss the grief that these apostles and disciples all had to have felt. In light of us just reading it, it's, it's kind of Judas was the one determined to betray Jesus. And so let's, let's get into the text. In verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of brothers was in all about 120. Now, in, in those days, in, in what days is he referring to? Is it the days between the ascension of Jesus? That's what we looked at last week in verse 10, and the coming of the Holy Spirit that we're going to cover next week in chapter 2. And during that time, Peter 
takes the initiative to address what happened with Judas and certainly with the help of the direction of the other apostles seeks to replace him. Peter stands up before this larger group, about 120 people, and he addresses the story of Judas. And let's notice here how Peter addresses the story with sensitivity and truth. Peter had denied Jesus three times, but now he obeys him. He does exactly what Jesus had told him to do in Luke 23, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's seeking to do just that, to strengthen the brothers and sisters in Christ. It goes on in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. As we come to this verse, we do it cautiously and wisely. We're going to see that Peter saying the scriptures had to be fulfilled is applying this after what was likely much prayer and searching of Scripture. The apostles, not just Peter, had surely pondered over what the next steps and process needed to be. Yet at the same time, they're grieving the loss of their friend and what had become of him. Peter's statement that the Scriptures had to be fulfilled underscores the conviction that Judas's involvement in Jesus' arrest and death was a predetermined part of God's will and plan. For Peter, it was enough to say the Scriptures have, have, to, have been fulfilled concerning Judas. He says that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand concerning Judas, and he refers to Judas as the one who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Judas went to the priests and offered to hand Jesus over to them for a certain amount of money. But which scriptures is it that Peter is referring to here? This is one of the times in scripture when the speaker or the writer doesn't necessarily give his audience the exact Old Testament reference. Possibly because in the context, it was obvious what he was talking about. But I think Peter is referring to Psalm 41.9 that says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. John's gospel records Jesus referencing that verse to refer to Judas in John 13, 18, after he had washed the disciples' feet. So it seems likely that Peter sees the scriptures fulfilled by Judas betraying in the same way. It goes on, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. This is very personal language. We don't want to overlook that. Judas had been their friend their ministry partner. 
He had been one of them in every possible sense. Think about that. That means Judas walked with them from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He saw all of the same miracles. All of the ways that Jesus embraced the broken. He ate at the same table. Laughed at the same jokes. Probably opened up about the same frustrations. Cried at the same struggles. They had known him intimately and he had known them intimately. And just like the other 11, Judas was called and sent by Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And like them, he was given by Jesus a kingdom and was appointed as a judge of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the way that that Peter brings up Judas is sincerely touching. It's personal. He goes on in verses 18 and 19. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So Luke here breaks away from Peter's address to explain what happened to Judas. So this isn't Peter talking, it's, it's a parenthetical statement that Luke writes in. And this is the tragedy of Judas's death, which N.T. Wright notes is held within the strange, dark, overarching purpose of God. It is a grievous account. I want to comment here because if we're careful readers, we're going to see that the two accounts of Judas's death in the New Testament do not seem to agree. Matthew is the other account of Judas's death. That's chapter 27, verses 3 through 10. Let me read it for you. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed. So in Matthew's account, Judas hangs himself. He dies by suicide. In Luke's account here in Acts 1, it's not clear exactly what happened. Luke says that he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. What's happening here? Some read Acts 1 as Luke describing some sort of disease. 
possibly a judgment on him. And he Wright comments here, the tragic story of his untimely death is told in quite a different form here from what we find in Matthew 27, 3 through 10. And since nobody in the early church attempted to tidy things up, we probably shouldn't try either. One way or another, whether it was actual suicide, as Matthew says, or whether it was a sudden and violent onset of a fatal disease, as Luke suggests, Judas was no longer among them. Now, I'll tell you on this, I tend to agree with Scott McKnight and others uh, who believe that both accounts refer to suicide, that, that Judas, out of remorse over his act of betraying innocent blood, which we see in Matthew's account, hanged himself, and to put the two accounts into harmony, his body fell apart onto a field that was soon called the field of blood. But let's consider this. Judas, the one who was with them all this time, their friend, grieves what he had done, is rejected by the religious leaders, and hangs himself. This had only happened weeks before. So these disciples are certainly confused and grieving. This text should not be imagined as if it happened without emotion. Now I'll tell you, I don't know how that plays into God's sovereign purpose. I don't know. And I'm going to say here, I don't know where Judas is right now. I don't know what his grief means in Matthew. I don't know if his attempt at returning the money is a testament to seeking to repent. I don't know if his words that he has sinned against innocent blood means repentance. I don't know. In verse 25, it refers to where Judas turned aside to go, or where Judas turned aside to go, and that's the only time in any of the texts about Judas, that there's a place mentioned, and that could be referring to the field of blood or the path that he is on in contrast to the path that Jesus has appointed him to, or some believe it could mean hell. But that isn't clear, and we shouldn't adamantly say that it is clear. But we'll comment here. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Suicide is the intentional taking of a life, of one's own life, but it does not mean a human was not saved. God's grace is sufficient. And the reality is it's likely that some in this room have experienced the loss of someone that they love to suicide. And I want to say to you, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for the impossible confusion and grief that accompanies your loss. But I also want to take the opportunity to say, if you find yourself in a place where you're struggling with thoughts of death or self-harm, or if you're prone to contemplating those thoughts and feelings, please, please know that you are loved by the one who knows every thought and every fear or doubt you've ever had. And your life is so precious to Him. 
please reach out to someone. Don't even let today go by without telling someone you trust that you need help and let them help you find someone who can help you navigate those thoughts. There is hope for you. I promise there is hope for you. It continues in the text in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now Luke is, is picking back up where Peter was addressing the crowd. The parenthetical statement is over. And Peter is about to lay out a succession plan for Judas. And points out to this Christian community in Jerusalem two texts from Psalms. Psalm 69, verse 25, as well as Psalm 109, verse 8. So let's consider these two texts. Psalm 69, if we were to go and read through the entirety of that chapter, is a psalm that is a complaint of David to God about his innumerable enemies who, quote, hate me without reason. That's Psalm 69, verse 4. His complaint becomes a petition for deliverance and for judgment on his enemies, including his desire that their camp be deserted and that no one dwells in their tents. That's verse 25 of Psalm 69. That's what Peter quotes here. Now, Peter alters the plural there to a singular his, and by doing so, turns the words into his own judgment of Judas for his betrayal. Then he uses Psalm 109 to explain why they are replacing Judas. Psalm 109 is another psalm of complaint by David about his enemies, and he prays that the days of his enemy be few, may another take his office. Now, the, the truth is, neither of these texts were actually about Judas. But Peter, who is informed by Scripture, gives a succession plan with words that are drawn from the Scriptures, and both texts could be used here to refer to David and his enemies as well as Jesus and his enemies. In fact, the Gospels actually used Psalm 69 for Jesus and his opponents. I want to stop here and say that some might want to, uh, they might want to try and force these two references, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, to be the examples of the scriptures Peter says in verse 16 had to be fulfilled. I don't think that's what's happening. That would leave us with two kind of confusing proof texts for Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And certainly, less clear references than Psalm 49 that Jesus quotes at the Last Supper when he told them the one of them would betray them, betray him. And so I don't think that that's what Peter is doing by quoting these psalms. I think he knew that the audience he was talking to probably would make the connection with, with Psalm 49 and is using two other texts now to present a plan to replace Judas with another to fill his position. In other words, he's, a, he's applying what David said about wrongdoers generally to Judas specifically. And he continues, verses 21 and 22. So, one of the men who have accompanied us 
during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter gives a qualification for whoever will replace Judas as an apostle. The replacement for Judas must be someone who has been with them the entire time the Lord Jesus was living among them. Now, we know from Luke 6, 13, that Jesus was surrounded by a larger group of disciples from which he chose the 12. Luke 6, 13 says, and when the day, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, whoever replaced Judas must have been among them since the beginning. And specifically from the baptism of John all the way until Jesus ascended. So imagine that. There were others, more than the 12, who were with Jesus the whole time. From his baptism to the ascension, were with him. That means that this 12th apostle would have encountered Jesus, having seen all that he had done, having heard all that he said, they would have encountered him after his resurrection. Peter says that they must be a witness to his resurrection because that's their mission. That's what Jesus said they were to do after they received power from the Holy Spirit, to be a witness. Whoever this is must be someone who can give an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, teaching, miracles, manner of life, death, and resurrection. They must be able to witness to the fact that Jesus, who proclaimed the kingdom of God, was indeed king. But notice what qualifies this person. What qualified him was following Jesus and his presence with Jesus, not giftedness or skills. He was a witness. It was his presence with Jesus. The task, once again, of the apostle of Jesus is to be a witness, and most notab notably a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Put forward these two, Justice and Matthias. Now, before we move on, we ought to note who wasn't put forward. Have you ever thought about that? I had not. I hadn't even considered it. But Jesus' brothers are not put forward. Specifically, James, who we know becomes a prominent leader in the church. And why is that? Well, likely it's because of the stipulations. James and the other brothers of Jesus had not been believers until later in Jesus' ministry. We don't know when, but it's later in his ministry. John 7 verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's possible that James and, and, and maybe others didn't believe until after Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. 
but we don't know when they believed. Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to James after he was raised in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But the truth is the resurrection changes everything. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. We have none of the assurances and promises of the ascension that we talked about last week. We have no hope apart from the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection changes everything. And then lastly, verses 24 through 26, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So they choose Matthias. Really, God chose Matthias. Let's not overlook how this took place. They bathed this in prayer. Lord, you know. Please show us. And they've gone to the word of God to guide them. And yes, it says they cast lots. Casting lots was a means of decision-making that was similar to sort of rolling dice. Whether names were written on stones or stones were cast in the lap, we are not given the exact details here, but it was, it was like rolling dice that we would see as random. But there's scripture for that as well. Proverbs 16.33, the law is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, this is a hope-filled verse. What does it mean? It means that God is absolutely in control. Even the most random of things, Solomon writes, is in the gracious and sovereign hands of God. One thing to note here about casting lots, this is the last time it's mentioned in the Bible. There's no other mention of anyone casting lots after this example here. And I've tended to think that that's because immediately after this is the coming of the Holy Spirit who is now the one to guide us into truth. And that might be true. I don't think that God wants us casting lots. I don't think He wants you... Um, talking about whether you're going to buy your next home and then pulling out Yahtzee and 
putting labels on the dice and rolling them. I don't think that's what he wants you to do. But at the same time, it was written about here in a way that is certainly positive. They used every bit of their own discernment to put forward two excellent candidates. They trusted God to guide the choice, and they had Scripture for that in Proverbs 16, and they prayed that God would make it known to them because God knows the hearts, and they didn't. But also, Luke isn't saying here that the choice of a person for a particular role or office or task is plain and straightforward. It isn't. Remember, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. There are stories coming in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament where there is disagreement over the choice of someone for a particular job or ministry role. So we don't read this and and apply it to our lives as if it's prescriptive and saying that everything's just clean, cut, and easy. What Luke is concerned with here in our text is that God knows the heart and these apostles trust Him in that. Now, we're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper. Before we, before we do that, I want to say one more thing here. We don't know a single other thing about Matthias. He's never mentioned in the Gospels, even though we're told in this text, he was with Jesus his entire ministry. He's not mentioned in the remainder of the New Testament, and that's okay. We know that God used the apostles and the rest of the disciples to do what? To witness to the resurrection. In Jerusalem, and we see that in Acts chapters 1 through 7, in Judea and Samaria, and we're going to see that in Acts chapters 8 through 12, and to the ends of the earth. And we're going to see that in Acts chapters 13 through the end of the book. And so you don't have to have books written about you to witness to the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a blessing that we're called to do that. It's a blessing that we are all called to witness to the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even as we consider the Lord's Supper, we witness to the resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is hope in the resurrection. That's us declaring our hope that Jesus is alive and He's coming back. And so, let's hope as we prepare to take the elements. You're going to be dismissed to come and get the bread and the cup and go back to your seats. Andrew's going to be playing. We're not going to be singing uh, today during this time. Andrew's going to play during this time. And And as he does, let's consider the resurrection of Jesus, the very thing that we're called to witness to in this life. And let's seek to do that. Let's seek to witness to the power of the truth that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. You're so good to us.
and your word is truth. We're so grateful that you've entrusted it to us, and we praise you, Lord. There's so many things that, that this particular text touches on, Lord, and we just ask that you would help guide hearts. And truly, Lord, I do want to pray, Lord, there may be some here that are more impacted about the conversation about suicide than any other thing that we've talked about. I pray, Father, that you would work in their hearts in this time, in these moments, that you would work in their hearts. You would point them to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's some here who who may have um, thoughts about even the silliness of, of casting lots or the seriousness of the fulfillment of Scripture, Lord. Whatever it is our hearts focused in on throughout this time, Lord, I pray that you would direct us to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, that you live. The fact that you promised that you were going to die, but that you were going to rise again and then did it, that changes everything, Lord. So please help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.